So uh, we've been in a series in the last few weeks. Uh, we're looking at this book in Acts, and we're in we're in chapter five, and uh, and we're we're learning about this this moment when it, when Peter is in a temple, and then hopefully by the end of the talk you're going to realize how that is a a really rich term throughout the Christian scriptures, and uh, I want to view it in light of Jesus this morning. But I want to kick off the talk today by talking uh, about these kind of three experiences in my life where I've had I've had these really kind of cross-cultural moments. So the, where, where I've, I've come to realize that there's other cultures in the world, and then when I came up next to them, there's a really like formative time, but also a learning experience. So the first time was when I I grew up in my my family's household, and we had. Our neighbors beside us, and on the front of their house, they had a B and a K in the brick, and the bricks were, and that stood for for Buddha and Kali. And they're a, they're an Indo-Canadian family, and they had five kids, just like our family. And the youngest of the five was two years older than me, and we were like we were great friends growing up, and we did all kinds of stuff together, played basketball. And I remember going into their house, and it was like a very different experience uh, from when from when I walked into my own house. So when you walked into their house, you immediately were greeted with the smell of like the, their uh, spices that they used to cook food. And then you'd notice there's like all this distinct woodwork that wraps up the, the stairs. And then when you walk upstairs, you see that there's a bunch of murals on the wall of gurus. And then there, apparently there's 11 gurus. They're, they're, uh, they were Sikh, they're from like the region of Punjab in India. And then uh, you would see a prayer room. And then I remember going to the, oh, and the other thing was ec really excellent food. I was looking for like every opportunity. <laughs> like uh, tikka masala and roti, so good. So that was one time. Uh, I also remember going to their temple, which is in Mission. We all know the Sikh temple just by Superstore. And it was like the same experience, like as if, as if they tried to make their home like their temple. This kind of open door policy, come eat with us, gurus on the wall, prayer stations, head coverings, like the whole bit. So that was kind of take one of my first really like formative, cross-cultural, but on Canadian soil experience. And then I had another one. So when I was 16, I was working at McDonald's and I worked for like several years from 14 to 16 and I had saved up enough money to go on this student exchange trip which it's important to know at that time of my life I was totally not studious whatsoever. Like I was averaging a, a C- minus in French class. Uh, and I even remember I had to go in at lunch times to like get my mark up above the 52% to, uh, to get through the course. But I was like really captured by people and culture and I, I really loved learning uh, about those two things. And then also I was captured by language. So I used up my money from McDonald's to fund this six month trip to France, which remember my grades in French in French. So I went there literally like with zero familiarity with the language. And then it was really cool actually. This is what happens like when you're 16 years old and you're kind of still like your brain's being formed. Within two months, I was like pretty competent in the language of French. So I, people could be speaking to me, and I would understand it, but probably like 85% of it, then I could speak it back reasonably. And that was like a, 
that, that was an interesting experience because when you're in France, it's a developed country, but it's also like quite a, an old country. So I think that was my first moment when I had like, uh, what do you call it? Culture shock. Because apparently, apparently culture shock is not just when you come into a new culture and you're like, whoa, this is way different. It's when you start getting like a little bit mad at the culture because that it's different, like it's frustrating. And unfortunately, that was actually my experience at the end of it where I'm like, I just feel a bit lonely and I don't know how to fit in and uh, I'm still learning this language. So those are the first two. And then this past September, I went uh, on a trip and I, I went with Greg. Uh, a, few, a few people in the room went on this trip and I went to the Middle East and I went to the, the country of Israel. And that was a really positive, unlike my friends experience because I, I went there just totally not knowing what to expect. And in the, the wrong sense of the word, I had culture shock. Like I was just shocked by how different it was. But it was, it was so, so cool. And I remember driving into, uh, we were driving from Tel Aviv Airport into Jerusalem and we're packed tightly in this van. And I remember seeing uh, Hasidic Jews for the first time. There's like a, there's an image come to mind of what a Hasidic Jew looks like. I had, I had never seen that. Like I knew that Hasidic Jews existed in New York and they spoke Yiddish, but I've never, like, I've only seen them in movies and I, I've never seen them walk down the street and they give you, they don't give you any eye contact. They're totally decked out in their uh, orthodox, their orthodox, uh, like, costume, their clothing. <laughs> and so that was, it was just endless learning for two weeks, going up and down Israel. But then when you go to the, the center of Jerusalem, you see this, this wall, this huge wall. And there's actually four of these massive walls, and there's this huge golden dome on top. And what you see outside of one wall, you guys know where I'm going, what this wall is? Yeah, you see all, you see, you actually see a dividing line through the middle, and on the right you see uh, Hasidic Jew women praying, and then on the left you see all these male Jew uh, men, and they're praying, and they're shoving their, they have these prayers uh, on paper, and they're shoving them into the wall, and they're all doing like this rocking, this rocking motion, and I remember even meeting this guy who was my age, who was from New York, and he spoke English, and his name was Shmuel, which is... Samuel for, in Yiddish, and I, and I asked him, like, dude, why, are, why is everybody, like, rocking this? Like, that, that's actually super weird. Like, what are they, what are they getting after there? And, they, and he just said that's, like, a way that they, they focus. But what really caught my attention was how is it that this community, uh, not just in contemporary, in, like, the modern world, but uh, the historical world, they have, like, this wild allegiance and fidelity to this location, these, this massive wall, and then what we're going to learn about today is that there's, a, there's this temple on top that uh, is written about all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Like, what is this fidelity about to this location? We have a photo of that. It's, uh, I think it's the first photo. Okay, that's, that's me butchering a, a Google images. But that's that wall. I was talking about, and there's the there's people praying in the in the wall, putting their prayers in. And what I was realizing from having arrived in Israel, 
and studying more about this temple is that I really don't have a category in my mind for, for what the temple is. And I can't really answer the question why that these Hasidic Jews have this real allegiance to, to this location. So uh, we're turning to a passage this morning that talks, that talks all about the temple. And I really struggled with this passage in Acts 5 because I, I didn't understand the role of the temple in the life of a, of a Jewish person. And this, this word temple, it's kind of like a lot of, other, a lot of these other Christian words that we use where uh, they're, like a, they're this theological term. And when you say them, what they actually are doing is they're trying to get you from A to B really quickly. But if you kind of imagine them as like a suitcase, so there's the, this word is a, bear with the metaphor for a second. This word is like a suitcase, it says, it says temple on it. And the idea is that it gets you from A to B really quickly, but in it is like all your kind of necessities for traveling. Or you can say it's all these stories and imagery and theological terms and symbolism terms. And this word temple is a very tightly packed suitcase term that when you open it up, it's just papers go everywhere. And it's like quite a disorientating experience of trying to understand this term. And the unfortunate thing at the same time is that you, this, this suitcase explodes and there's these papers everywhere. And then you, you grab the paper and you think, okay, this, I can do this school project. And you realize, oh my goodness, this is, this is a paper written in an ancient language. It's like, oh man, this is a, this is a paper, this paper is not from Canada either. And even to understand this paper, it's like I need these five other suitcase words to understand it. So it's like this really kind of uh, confusing topic. So this morning, my hope is to just carve out uh, a train of thought or a, a pile of papers, so to speak, that when we come to this passage in Acts 5 that I'm going to read at the end, we can really clue into exactly what Peter and Jesus and the rest of the apostles were doing and why it was so evocative and inflammatory to the religious elite who had this affiliation to the temple. So, uh, we're good for that? How's the intro? <laughs> so, I, I think, uh, or why don't I start here actually? If you were to go to Jerusalem today, you'd, you'd come into the city, and it's just without a doubt, the biggest thing you're going to see in the city is this golden dome. We have a photo of it. And this temple, is, which that's, that's not what it looked like in, when you read the Hebrew scriptures in the past. It's been like taken over and mauled down. And that, this is a Jewish area, it's the Jewish temple, but that's actually a Muslim mosque. Now, that was a really disorientating experience, realizing, oh, I've come into the land of the Jews, but there's a Muslim mosque. And that's what I'm talking about. It's like this suitcase experience, because you realize, wow, I just have to do so much learning to wrap my mind just around the historical significance of this location. And I think we have some more photos of, there's another one. That's taken by my friend there, Bob. There's us, hold there, you might see, you'll see Greg and I in the photo. See us in there? So that's, one, one of the photos I showed you is from Google Maps. And then this is one that uh, our tour, or not our tour guide, our friend, our friend took. I think we have some more. There's yours truly, again, walking around. 
that's another side of the wall I was talking about of the temple. Is there any more there? I think that might. Is that the last one? So this temple was. It, it has this rich history, and it was the center of Jewish religion and just regular life. That people in the town of Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus, and still today, are always going to this temple for these different kind of religious practices. And it's, it's actually a difficult concept to try and find a parallel to in our, our Western world. But I think if we think about our neighbors to the south, they actually have a few, they have a few kind of a few institutions and locations that somewhat catch the gravity of what, what this location meant to a Jew. So if you think of the, the White House, I think the White House is a pretty fair comparison to, to what this location was. And in particular, the White House houses the, the, the leaders of the country of the United States. And that's the same thing at the temple. This is where all the religious elite gathered. Uh, another, another one is the National Monument, and that's because the National Monument tells a, tells a, it's like an architectural place that tells a story. And then thirdly, the Statue of Liberty, because Jews, when they looked at this location, it's like they found, they found their story in it, because all throughout the scriptures there's these, there's these comments about this location. So I think uh, this, this feels like a really kind of abstract thing we're trying to wrap our mind around because it's like this, this religious location that's ancient. But I don't think it's actually that surprising when we consider a few more, uh, a few more kind of aspects of it. And sacred space, I think, is actually our access point. So is sacred space like a familiar term in the room? Yeah. Uh, we have all kinds of different sacred spaces in mission. I think the seat place would be one. I think a sacred space of mine is when, I, when I'm like alone in my car or if you're on a hike. And it's like we all do these things and spend a lot of energy and time doing these things to find that sacred space. And pretty much what a sacred space actually is, it's when you have your human experience and then you, you kind of carve out some intentional time and energy and resources to trying to curate an environment where it's, it's not just your human experience, but there's this overlap that happens, where your human experience overlaps a, a divine experience. And that is, that is precisely what the temple is about. So for Israel, uh, sacred spaces, and this is a teaching moment, so just bear with all this teaching. I think we'll be, you'll like, kind of see where I'm heading in a second. So sacred space is always pointed somewhere. And in the, the Jewish context, when you enter the temple, those sacred spaces pointed to, namely Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible. And Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible, they, they, depict, uh, they depict this created world where humanity and the creator are kind of there's this full relationship, as if they're, they're one. They're kind of working together, and then you flip a few pages, and then there's the, the debacle, and it's not, it's not what it once was. There's this tarnished, there's this tarnished union. And then what you, what you see is that humans are refusing to submit to the, the wisdom of their creator. And then we read about the creator pursuing them. 
And he's pursuing them in these locations. And this is what the Bible calls uh, tents and tabernacles and temples. It's that, these, it's that these are these sacred spaces where the human experience overlaps the divine experience. And the description of these places are like, uh, they're like mini Edens. That this is what I mean by they're trying to allude to Genesis 1 and 2. So uh, we have a photo of this, this temple that's depicted in first, I think it's in second Kings, this temple. So there's these temples. What they're trying to do is they're trying to refer back to this time in history when things were, were better. And the idea here is that in that building, there's all this imagery, and the whole point of that imagery is that it's trying to depict uh, a mini Eden. So you see a bunch of food, you see this garden, you see angelic figures, it's gold, it's, it's ornate. And priests would head into this temple, not just regular people, and they would make sacrifices for their people. And these animal sacrifices, and this is like a really abstract idea, these animal sacrifices represented the, the, the kind of like the, they're these symbols of death that represent our wreckage in the world that God created. But it's, these, it's this moment where it's a, it's a sacred space. It's this opportunity for union to come, to come back. Union was tarnished in Genesis 3, but God's pursued creation, and he's created these sacred spaces where union can happen. So that was a lot of teaching. Sorry about that. Uh, we're, I get really confused by this topic when we start talking about sacrifice. I just have like zero concept for it. So I want to help answer maybe some objections in the roofs by watching a video. So we have a video teed up here that I'm going to get. We don't want the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. You know, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they also ruin the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good, he should be the one to just get rid of all evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, we'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which, I know, seemed weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world, I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. 
Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for men. And that word ransom refers to the sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. 
The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. Okay, well, so hopefully that was helpful. Like I said, I find this idea of sacrifice like super foreign and super abstract, but it's kind of one of those topics that's like a suitcase that if you're choosing to follow Jesus, you kind of have this task in front of you to like, to, to cap, create a category in your mind and your, your life for it, really. So what happens in the storyline of the Bible is that we have these temples. And these temples are sacred spaces where union happens again with God despite the Eden debacle. And it's these places where sacrifices are kind of like our means for coming back into full union. And when you come into this place where the sacrifices happen, it's gold, it's ornate, it's garden imagery for the whole point being that you are somebody who walks into this space, you look at, back at these images that point you to Eden, then you remember, oh, this is the type of human I'm supposed to be. And then you come out of the temple, and ideally, what's supposed to happen to you if you come into the temple and you're, you're not, you don't have Eden on your mind, but then you come out of the temple, it's hopefully you have Eden on your mind, and it's like, oh, there, there is access to a world that's not as tarnished by the, the activity of evil in it. So in the story of the Bible, in the plot line, this, this problem develops, though, with the Israelites' relationship to the temple. And the problem is, is that this was once this revered institution created by God in his pursuit of us. And it really caused transformation in the life of that Jewish community. But what happened, and the prophets in the Old Testament, there's like five of them that start calling out this problem. And it's that people would go into these temples, these priests, and they would go in just kind of, uh, like they, they've lost the perspective of what the point of the temple was. They become so obsessed with the material building, the architectural building of the temple, that was a signpost that God was with them. And they forgot about to, to like where the temple was actually pointing them, which was to become a people that, that did not have a relationship to evil, like, like what happened in uh, Genesis 3. So the priests would, would go into the temple, and then they would come out, and there would be zero transformation. And this just kept happening. It kept happening, and it kept happening. So uh, there's these prophets that start calling, they start calling out this activity, and they start calling out kind of the, the destruction that's going to come. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, this is precisely the problem and the reality that's continuing to still happen. So it's been happening for quite some time. Jesus comes back on the scene, and it's, it's still happening. And there's these, there's these religious elite called the Sadducees, and they're aristocratic. So they have privilege, and they are they're kind of the brokers for this system, and they are... They're really privileging, privileging themselves by their, their positional authority. But at the same time, they realize, oh, not only do we have positional authority, but we also have spiritual authority because of our positional authority, and we're the people that get to broker it out to the rest of our community. So this is exactly the same problem 
is that these Sadducees would go into the temple, they were part of the Sanhedrin, and then they would come out, and they, they would just be obsessed with their positional authority and their, the fact that they were the people that got to broker the spiritual authority, and they would miss out on the hurting community around them. And this is, this is the scene that Jesus arrived in. It's where these religious and rich men are, are being obsessed with ritual purity. So he's, Jesus is making these remarks about, like, change, change your heart. You guys are so obsessed with how you look on the outside. Like, change, change your heart. So one way I've been understanding this, are we doing good, folks? It's, kind of, it's just a load of content. That's what I'm telling you. It's like this suitcase thing. I just felt so overwhelmed and preparing this one. So I've been understanding this idea as like a, imagine there's this temple. And imagine in front of the temple, your access to it is like this oak door. It's like a $5,000, just like super rich, luxurious oak door. And the oak door is, is there because look what's gonna happen to you when you walk into this room. You're gonna like, you're gonna be in this gold room. You're gonna be changed when you go into this room. So this, there has to be an oak door because it just would be inconsistent if there's not an oak door. And for a while, that's, that's how the Jews viewed it. It's like, this, this institution needs an oak door because, and beyond an oak door, when we go in there, we gotta be dressing good. Because when we come back out, we're going to be changed people. So it was, it was really revered. And what started to happen is that they, they lost that reverence. And you guys know the doors, like in a kitchen. Uh, like imagine like a, a big kind of fancy kitchen where you see chefs walking in and out, and it's those doors that go back and forth. They started treating it kind of like that. Is that it would just go into the temple? It was no longer an oak door. It was one of these doors that just flies open, and then you exit, and it flies back. And there was no longer like this respect for it. They had lost totally this idea that it was about transformation. And just bear with me. Bear with the metaphor for another moment. Imagine that that flimsy door. It had two hinges, and these hinges had become rusty. They're like they are not the hinges they once were. The door got replaced with this flimsy door, it's, this, it's these rusty old hinges. Then if you imagine that those hinges are these things, are, are these uh, qualities that the Sadducees had, which the top hinge is this positional authority, and the bottom hinge is this, this spiritual authority. And guess, guess what Jesus does, if we're working with that metaphor? What, what do you think his aim is using this metaphor? And he's arrived on the scene and he just, he just cannot deal with the hypocrisy. Yeah, he wants, to, he wants to rip out those hinges. He literally wants to unhinge the, the entire system. He just so strongly disagrees with it. He realized, yes, at once this was a revered institution, but now it, it's corrupt. We need something new. So I want to just really quickly walk through this redefinition that Jesus made, and then we're, we're pretty well done. So, we have uh, a slide, it's first, or it's John 1. So what we're doing right now, folks, is we're just redefining how, how Jesus took this corrupt institution and started to rework it. And you have to remember this institution was the dwelling place for the, the embodied presence of God. That's, that's the Jewish idea. 
So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. With Him nothing was made that has been made. With, oh, sorry, without Him nothing has been made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Does this sound like any other place in the Bible? For those that spend some time reading it? Yeah, what, what the author John here is doing is he's reworking that Genesis story. And now he's saying that, if you, if you clue into that word dwelling, dwelling is the exact same word used to refer to where the personal presence of God lived in these temples. So we have another slide, it's John 2. And we'll work through this one pretty quickly, but it won't take long. So starting at verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned, overturned their tables. So I think in this scene, you have to... Remember what I compared that temple to in America? This, this would be like Jesus sneaking into a, a private event at the White House. Just, just imagine like the gravity of that. And he's this man and he, he pulls out this whip and he starts trying to like whip the Biden administration. He's just, he's just whipping them. That, that is literally the equivalent of what John is talking about here. And this is the moment that's mentioned in his trial as well, like it was this exact event that put the target on, on Jesus' head. It's, it's kind of the, the reference point to why the religious elite thought he should die. So it continues, uh, verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was, that it was written, that it is written, zeal for your father's, zeal for your house will consume you. So this is, uh, this, Jesus is not the first person to do this. There's, a, there's another prophet who did this exact same thing. He, call, he started calling out this exact same problem. That's the prophet Jeremiah, and he did it in Jeremiah 7. I think we can skip it in a second. No, no. Uh, and then I'll just finish this last part on that John. It's back to John, uh, John 2. So the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, How can that be? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke about was his body. So what, what John is doing here is he's, he's turning back to the reader when he says, what he's speaking about in his body, and he's saying, this is, the, this is now the death of this temple institution. How it's going to be re-inaugurated is through this person of Jesus. So I want to just quickly talk about what's the, the role of the temple, and then, then we're done, totally done. Uh, why don't you just, you know how there's like all those progression of slides, why don't you just do go to the last one? So this is, this is the role of the temple, really quickly. 
It's a place where you meet the active presence of God. It's this place where you establish right relationship with God. It's this place that confronts you with the ideal, Genesis. It's this holy place set apart to transform your heart. We have another slide which redefines this idea in light of Jesus. Well, I'm not going to read all that, don't worry. So it's a holy person instead of a place through whom you meet the active presence of God. It's through a holy person, not, no longer a place that you establish right relationship with God through sacrifice. It's a holy person that confronts you with the ideal, not a holy place. But it's a holy person set apart to transform your heart and mind. So, so far in Acts, we're ending now. The Holy Spirit, which we learned about a few weeks ago, it's, it's come on these people. The personal presence of God doesn't dwell in the temple. It dwells in Jesus' people. So there's, there's those, his followers don't think that the presence of God's in the temple, but they think it's in his people. And the apostles, and there's thousands of followers at this point, and what's happening in Acts 5 is that there's all these, all these people that are following Jesus They've, they've unhinged the system, and they no longer want to participate in the system, and they're now following Jesus, and it's causing an absolute ruckus. We find Peter back in the temple courts uh, through the direction of an, an angel doing the same thing of calling out the institution, and he just is getting himself in all kinds of trouble. So that's, that was the, the passage for today, but we're, I think I'm being conscientious of the kids, so I don't want to keep going. But why don't I end with two questions, and uh, it's kind of using this, this idea, or the, this, this idea of giving and receiving. So when we think of giving, or sorry, when we think of receiving, the question I have for you is, are you experiencing the activity of the Spirit in your life? Which if you think of what the activity of the Spirit does, uh, you, you think of Galatians 5, so it's like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. So is that is that a part of your human experience lately? That you're experiencing breakthrough in that way? Then secondly, uh, this giving part. If in fact you now uh, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's not just this location, but that, that's you. Are you doing like what a, what a temple does, which is restoring people through, through the message and activity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? So we're going to end it there, guys. Uh, thanks for sticking through that one. Um, lots of teaching. But why don't I quickly pray, and then we can transition into the last one. So uh, Jesus, thank, thanks that we that there is opportunity to dig deeper into, into your word, and that there's ways to look at the passages that we can glance over and realize that, wow, there's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot more depth and you can understand the context and meet you in a, in a fresh way. So uh, as we move forward in life this week, help us to be folks that can re receive your spirit and be, be lifted up by it and then not stop there, but to have the to kind of view ourselves as a, as a mobile temple, restoring people with your spirit. So it's in your name, Jesus, that we do all of this. Amen.